Okay, a lot going on this morning, guys. Uh, well, good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. I trust and hope you're having a good weekend so far. Um, I don't know about you, but I cannot believe it's already November. The second week of November, um, we had a planning meeting as a staff this week to talk through Christmas Eve, and it's just like, wow, how are we doing this already? But here we are. And uh, speaking of Christmas, we are going to do a Christmas series this year, which will start two weeks from now when Advent begins. But uh, for today, we are going to continue in this series that we've been in called Behold, It is Very Good. And if you're new with us or if you're just visiting this morning, what we've been doing in this series the last several weeks is we've been looking at the early chapters of the Bible, specifically Genesis 1 and 2, and we've been talking about the goodness of creation and even more specifically the goodness of humanity, including our physical bodies. And in that, we've spent a lot of time talking about the fact that humanity, both male and female, are created in God's image. And last week, I attempted to tackle and to talk through the subject of gender and sexuality. Now, this week, I want to tackle perhaps an equally challenging or controversial topic, which is biblical masculinity. And in some ways, I'm almost more nervous to talk about this subject than I was last week in discussing transgenderism. And the reason for that is because this is a topic the culture almost certainly distorts and gets wrong. But it's also a topic many believers have gotten wrong as well. And so because of that, I want to follow uh, pretty much the same exact outline that I used last week, which is not very creative, but uh, it's what I've got for us this morning. And that is I'm going to try to answer these three questions. How does our current secular culture view masculinity? How does the Bible view masculinity? And then finally, how should believers and how should the church respond? And so starting with this first question here, how does our current secular culture view masculinity? Well, I don't know about you, and, and maybe you disagree, but it seems to me from observing our culture, there appears to be three main views. The first view seems uh, to, it, it appears to see masculinity primarily through things like stereotypes. For example, I, I looked at a survey this week from several years ago, which ranked America's most manly cities. And the criteria they used to determine which cities were the manliest were things like number of sports teams, hardware and home improvement stores, trucks sold, motorcycles, steakhouses, sports bars, and fishing license. And so in light of that, it seems according to some in our society, those are the kinds of places, things, and activities that demonstrate or determine whether or not a person is masculine. Well, what about men's magazines? Well, um, personally, I don't look at men's magazines anymore because they're almost always borderline pornographic. But um, from what I know of them is that they seem to think that in order to be a man, it means you love lifting weights and getting jacked in the gym. It also means you apparently love sports and, you know, live your life for fantasy football. And apparently you must also love fast cars or big trucks. And of course, you also want to look at women with little to no clothes on. Now, the thing about all of that that is a little ironic is that it wasn't that long ago that men were known for things like art and poetry and music. Right? Like, like, let's not forget that it was a man who carved the statue of David. It was a man who painted the Sistine Chapel. It was a man who wrote the words to Romeo and Juliet. And it was a man who wrote the music piece, Canon and D. So if defining masculinity is based on stereotypes or cultural expressions, what happens if those things change? Um, for, for example, uh, generally in our culture, wearing a skirt, having long hair, and painting one's face all signify femininity, right? I think we have a picture, okay. Um, however, though, if that's what it means to be a woman, then what do we do with this, right? <laughs> like, certainly those dudes appear to be men and are masculine, and I, I don't know, I'm not the one who wants to tell them otherwise. <laughs> you see, we didn't get into it much last week because I just ran out of time, um, but in, in that message on transgender identities, the, the thing is, is that stereotypes play a huge role in that discussion. 
There is no doubt that some who struggle with gender dysphoria in our culture are actually just struggling to fit into the rigid stereotypes of gender that our culture has prescribed. If all you've ever been told is that men don't cry, men must love sports, and they must love to hunt and eat red meat, then there's no wonder why some men are convinced that they are a woman trapped in a man's body. Because obviously not everyone loves those things. And yet the problem isn't your gender identity. The problem is you just don't fit, uh, you just don't fit neatly into our culture's current rigid, rigid stereotypes. And unfortunately, instead of pushing back against those gender stereotypes, many are reinforcing them by becoming gay or transgender. And so certainly one view of masculinity in our culture is based on and is even defined by stereotypes. Another view, however, essentially argues that all expressions of masculinity are toxic. For example, Nancy Piercy has pointed out in her new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, things like this. Um, the Washington Post ran an article by a gender studies professor entitled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Um, the New Statesman, which is a, a UK news magazine, featured a, a British author who said, you can't hate all men, can you? Actually, I can. As a class, I hate men. Um, for a, uh, apparently for a while on Twitter, there was a popular hashtag going around called hashtag kill all men. There's t-shirts you can buy with words like this, so many men, so little ammunition. Um, several books that have come out in the last couple of years have titles like I Hate Men, The End of Men, and Are Men Necessary? Piercy also points out that universities are a hotbed of anti-male sentiment. In an article from USA Today, it says that at today's universities, masculinity is almost never discussed except in negative terms, usually with the word toxic attached. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I, you know, I just bet that that's almost always or only coming from hardcore feminists, but, but actually even some men are jumping onto this bandwagon. Um, one male author in his book, Refusing to Be a Man, wrote this, Talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Another male author said, testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything. Not only that, but uh, a media researcher named Jim McNamara conducted an extensive content analysis of more than 2,000 mass media portrayals of men. And he found in that that more than 75% of all media representations of men portrayed them as villains, aggressors, perverts, and philanderers. Now there's no doubt that there is such a thing as toxic masculinity in our culture. I think we would all acknowledge that from celebrities like Andrew Tate to high profile domestic abuse cases with professional athletes to domineering leadership in churches and other organizations like what we saw with the rise and fall of Mars Hill and certainly with things like the Me Too or Church Too movements from a couple years ago. However, though, what some in our culture seem to be saying is that masculinity in and of itself is the problem and that there is no such thing as a healthy masculinity. And so that would be another view or another version in our culture. I think another or third view that we see is that basically it's the view that there are no differences between men and women whatsoever. This view seeks to flatten out or even deny any gender distinctions or differences. This is the view that uh, is really pushing for androgynous everything in our culture. Now, in some ways, this is the opposite of the stereotype view. This might look like trying to raise a kid genderless, like what actress Kate Hudson has said she's going to do with her kids. Or it might, like, it might even look like a woman being offended that a man offers to hold the door for her or being offended that a man offers to carry something heavy. It's kind of the mindset of, I, I don't need a man or a, a woman can do anything a man can do. And yet when it comes to this view, I'm not totally convinced that we actually believe this. For example, in the year 2012, there were two terrible tragedies that took place which involved people losing their lives. One involved a mass shooting in Aurora, Colorado, when a gunman walked into a movie theater, 
during a midnight showing of the movie The Dark Dark Night Rises. And as he opened fire, five different young men grabbed their girlfriends and or a female friend they were there with, and they threw them to the ground, and they laid on top of them in order to protect them. And all five men died in doing so, but their girlfriends lived. One of those young ladies was a a, a woman named Julie. I don't know how you say her last name. It's complicated. But Julie said this, immediately and instinctively, John covered me and brought me to the ground in order to protect me from any danger. He knowingly shielded me from a spray of gunshots. It was then I believed that John was hit with a bullet that would have very possibly struck me. I feel very strongly I was saved by John and his ultimate kindness. One journalist summed up the situation by saying, calling it chivalry would be a tremendous understatement. By all appearances, these men believe that as a man, they have a responsibility to protect a woman, even to the point of death. They believe that there are things in life worth dying for, and the innocent woman sitting next to them was one. They believe, to put it simply, in a code of honor. They put the lives of the women before their own, an old-fashioned notion to be sure, but certainly an honorable one. If you have any doubt, ask the survivors. Their instincts were to protect, not run away. Now, again, in that same year, 2012, there was another tragedy, but this one involved a cruise ship, and it took place off the coast of Italy. And I don't know if you remember this story, but but the ship was called the Costa Concordia. And at some point during its voyage, the ship collided with a large rock that ripped a huge hole in the side of it, and the ship began to capsize and sink. And according to multiple reports, there were several men who pushed past terrified women and children in order to get to the lifeboats first. In fact, one elderly couple described being in line to get on a lifeboat when all of a sudden different men began to push and barge their way past them in order to get to the boats first. One news uh, article responded by saying, it was every man and crew member for himself. According to the story, men refused to prioritize women and children and fights broke out for spaces on lifeboats. Now, again, when you think of those two different stories, those two different responses, it seems clear that for the most part, our society gets that one of those is the proper response and the other is not. And yet there are still those who insist that there aren't really any differences between men or women. And really, when we think about all that's going on in our culture, I think we need to ask the question, how is all of this working out for us? Well, again, as Piercy points out in her book, educationally, we are starting to see boys fall behind girls significantly, from high school graduation rates to the rates of men going to college. One study showed that female students now outnumber male students on university campuses by about 60 to 40%. As well, we're told that women are more likely to earn a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and even a a doctoral degree. Not only educationally, but statistics also tell us that men are more likely to be homeless, to suffer mental illness, to wind up in prison, to commit suicide, to be murdered, and to be addicted to drugs or alcohol. As well, the men's workforce participation has dropped to depression level eras, or to depression era levels. We also saw in recent years, this made the news, that men's life expectancy dropped while women stayed the same. And there are other multiple uh, things that we could point to, but I I think what we see here is that our current script on masculinity from our culture certainly isn't leading to human flourishing. And that's true for both men, but I think it's also true for women. Because when men don't flourish, it wreaks havoc in the lives of women and children as well. And so if that's how our culture views masculinity, in contrast now, how does the Bible view masculinity? Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn now to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a couple of different sections here in Genesis, but let me start by reading our theme passage for the series, Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Skipping down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Um, let's turn a page and jump to chapter two, picking it up in verse seven. Chapter 2 is a more detailed account of the creation of mankind. And, and starting in verse 7, we read this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Skipping down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so obviously last week we looked at both of these sections and some of the points I made last week I just want to mention again because they are obviously relevant for our discussion on what the Bible has to say about masculinity. And so again, just by way of review, what we said last week coming out of these passages is that number one, human beings are created in the image of God. And that includes male and female. And the reason that is significant is because there are aspects of God's image that are reflected in females, and there are aspects of God's image that are reflected in, in, in females and in males. I think I said it wrong. And there are aspects of God's image that are reflected in males, and together, male and female collectively, we reflect God's image. The second thing I brought out last week is that uh, what we see here in this passage is the fact that God created two and only two distinct genders Again, male and female. The third thing I highlighted was that as humans, we were biologically designed to procreate. Again, the reason men have sperm is to make a baby. The reason women have eggs is to make a baby. And then finally, the last thing I drew out from the passage is that God's plan for gender and sexuality is very good, as we see proclaimed here in Genesis 1:31. Now, as we think about masculinity or maleness, what else do we learn here or what else do we see from Genesis that is informative? Well, let's first talk a little bit more about the ways men and women are the same, and then let's drill down a little bit more on how they are different. And so in terms of men and women being the same, again, the first thing we see here is that both men and women are made in the image of God, as it says in Genesis 1:27. Both, according to the next verse, Genesis 1:28, were called to be fruitful and to multiply. They were both told to fill the earth and subdue it, what some have referred to as the cultural mandate. As well, unfortunately, we see in Genesis 3 that they both carry the curse and consequences of sin. 
Now, in a moment, we'll talk about how they were cursed differently based on their roles, but even still, they were both cursed, and one of the curses that they shared was death. Not only that, but both of them were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now, there are so many other things that uh, men and women have in common, be it biological or even theological, that I couldn't possibly list them all. For example, though, we, we both have ears and eyes and a nose and a mouth. We both have hearts and lungs and kidneys and livers and, and on and on we could go because, right, biologically, men and women have a lot in common. As well, theologically, in addition to the things I just mentioned from Genesis, we also know that men and women are both fellow heirs of the grace of life, as it says in 1 Peter 3, 7. Both are commanded to obey and to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. Both are given the Holy Spirit and have spiritual gifts. Both will be given new resurrected bodies when Christ returns. And on and on we could go talking about all of the things men and women have in common theologically. And really, when we look at the scriptures as a whole, what we see is that men and women are equal in the sight of God in terms of dignity and worth, and therefore they should be equal in our sight as well. In other words, there is nothing in the Bible that would lead you to believe that men are superior to women or that women are superior to men. Now, as I said in my intro, that reality hasn't always been lived out in our culture, and unfortunately, it hasn't always been lived out or taught in the church as well. Now, even with that said, it is, it's also true both biologically and theologically, that men and women are different and distinct and unique. In fact, Adam, I think, recognizes this reality in his poem in Genesis 2 when he first meets Eve. Again, look again at Genesis 2, 23. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And commenting on this passage, uh, author John Mark Comer writes this. In Hebrew, it's a word play. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. It's Adam's way of saying she's, she's like me, but she's not like me at all. She's familiar, but she's different, strange, unique. You see, in looking at the woman, Adam recognizes their similarities, meaning he recognizes that they, they have similar flesh and bones. But, but in giving her a different name, he also recognizes that they are different. You see, the reality is, is if men and women are the exact same, then one of us is unnecessary. However, though, as we already said, we are different. And again, when we go back to biology and theology, we see that those differences are by design. And those differences do fit and work together and even complement one another. And therefore, those differences are very good. Now, let me just lay my cards on the table here. This is probably the part of the message where some of you may have trouble, and perhaps you're already on high alert because I just used the word compliment. <laughs> Both this church and its entire 50-year history, and even the universal church for most of the last 2,000 years, has been what some refer to as complementary. Now, there's a lot that goes into that, and I certainly don't have time in this message to get into all the various nuances of that and work through all of the arguments both for and against it. But I bring it up because when it comes to talking through biblical masculinity or the role of men, this framework has traditionally argued that men have a couple distinctions, or you could even say a couple responsibilities that are different from women and vice versa. Now, again, some of you may disagree with me, and that's fine. And this may even sound, what I'm about to say may sound uh, uh, archaic or absurd. But I'm asking you just to hang in here with me and to examine the scriptures for yourself. When it comes to differing roles and differing responsibilities, it appears based on the, uh, the scriptures, and even in some cases based on biology, that by design... Men bear the primary responsibility to spiritually lead, to provide, and to protect. Now, a couple more qualifiers before we work through each one of those. 
Number one, I'm going to be primarily focusing on these roles and responsibilities as they relate to the male-female relationship inside the family. Now, if you're interested, our elders have written a paper describing what we believe about complementarianism as it relates to the church. And if you email uh, our office, we can give you a copy of that. But again, for our conversation today, I want to focus on these roles inside the home. Now, with that, the other thing I want to say is that if you're here today and you're a single man, that some of the particulars of, of how these roles and responsibilities play out in your life will look different than a married person. But even still, I believe these are qualities to aim for and to varying levels, responsibilities you should feel. And so because, of, and, uh, because I'm a sucker for uh, alliteration when I teach, as you may have noticed, um, let me give you now and work through three primary roles and responsibilities for men, which are priest, provider, and protector. So starting with priest, what do I mean by that? All I simply mean by that is that men are called to lead out spiritually in their homes and in their families. Now, in saying that, that doesn't mean that women aren't supposed to be spiritual or that they can't lead spiritually in the home. But what it does mean is that the man should feel the primary weight and responsibility. In Genesis 2, we see very clearly that man was created first from the dust of the ground. We also see in chapter 2 that Adam was given the responsibility to name the animals, which I think is interesting, right? Because it's not as if God was getting tired or if he was like, you know, he's running out of creative juices and he's like, you know, Adam, can you help me out here? I have no idea what to call these things that are running around. Help me. That's not what's going on. No, in the ancient Near East, naming something or someone was a sign of relationship and authority. And not only is Adam given the responsibility to name the animals, but he also names Eve. Not only that, but also in the ancient Near East, the firstborn was the heir to the inheritance. And with that, that, that being an heir came weight and responsibility to lead. And so what we see here is that even the order of creation is significant and informative. That's why when the Apostle Paul uh, brings up anything to do with gender roles in the New Testament, he almost always goes back to the Genesis story. And specifically in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, he mentions the fact that Adam was created first. We also see in Genesis 2 at the end in verse 24 that man is supposed to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Again, I think what we see there is leadership. There's, there's to be initiation. We see in Genesis 3 that at the fall that it was Eve who was interacting with the serpent and that she was the first one to take a bite. Although the story does make it clear that Adam was standing right next to her and that he too ate the fruit. But even still, what's interesting is that after this, when God goes to confront them, it says in Genesis 3, 8, uh, here's, here's what it says, and, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? You see, Eve may have been the, the, the one who sinned first, but when God goes to confront them, he addresses the man. And it's Adam who is being asked to give an account for what took place. In other words, it appears that at some level, God holds men accountable for what takes place in their families, including spiritually. And I don't know uh, totally what that looks like, but I do think that one day when I stand before the Lord, that as part of that, he will ask me to give an account for how I led our family spiritually, including some of the decisions that we made. And I should also say here that it appears both uh, in the story with Adam and Eve and also just based on my own life and pastoral experience, that when it comes to leading in our homes, many men are tempted to be passive and or to abdicate that responsibility. Again, it's interesting here that the story tells us very explicitly that as the serpent is talking to the woman, Adam is standing right next to her, and yet he's not interjecting anything. He's not saying, you know, hey, serpent, 
Get the heck out of here. Quit talking to my wife. No, instead, he is just passively watching all of this take place. And so, men, I just want to say to you, don't be surprised if you find yourself being prone to being passive. However, though, I would exhort you to do all that you can to fight against that temptation because that is not what God has called you to. Now, what about the New Testament? Does the New Testament have anything to add to this conversation? Well, certainly it does. And we can't look at all of the relevant verses, but, but probably the most significant, but also the most controversial is Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, the apostle Paul writes this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, his, is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, I was a little bit hesitant about bringing this passage up because it's a, it's a really important passage, but it's also pretty nuanced, and I know I don't have time to adequately explain it. However, though, I do think what we see here is a unique role specifically on husbands to lead their wife and their children spiritually. And according to Paul, what that primarily looks like is sacrificial love and care. And with that, men are to look to Jesus as our model and example. Now, there's so much more that we could say about all of this, but I think we need to move on and go to the next role or the next responsibility, which is provider. Let's go back to Genesis and let's look again in Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, so in terms of being a provider, what does that mean and what does it not mean? Well, let me just say from the outset, and perhaps Chris will get into this more next week, but um, I, I don't think this means that a wife can't work outside the home. I also don't think that this means that a, a husband has to make more money than his wife or anything else like that. However, what I do think that this means is that at some level, barring any exception, be they medical or mental, that a man, a husband, should feel the weight and the responsibility to work and to provide for himself and for his family. In other words, I believe men are designed both biologically and theologically to work and to work hard. Again, what we see here is that at the beginning, before sin had entered the world, uh, even before Eve was created, God gave Adam a job and God commanded him to work. And if that weren't clear enough, we also see this role and this responsibility for men based on how God curses Adam after the fall. Look at Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, and you are dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, if providing for our families and if work wasn't a primary role or responsibility for men, then why would God punish Adam by cursing his work? Again, it seems clear based on these early chapters in Genesis that men are expected to work and to provide for their families. And yet, because it is hard and because the curse has affected our work, men, I think, are tempted to be lazy. 
Just like how some men are tempted to be passive when it comes to spiritually leading, some men are also tempted to be lazy when it comes to work. And yet because we are designed to work, it seems to me a lazy man is a dangerous man. Um, Russell Moore in his book uh, called The Storm-Tossed Family, he talks about this. He says, you know, very few people want to return to caricatured and exaggerated ideas of roles in marriage. But the loss of a sense of order and economy has been more costly than we would like to admit. Rigid patriarchy benefits men and hurts women. On that, we can all agree. But it turns out that virtual matriarchy also turns out to benefit men and hurt women. A Christian social worker in a large Asian city told me recently about the hostility towards men she faces in working with women. The reason is that in her area, male unemployment is widespread. Often, she said, the women work to support their families entirely while the men do little. The result is a kind of simmering rage among many women there. In many contexts, the idea of the breadwinner man replaced by the breadwinner woman results in the woman doing almost everything they would do in a traditional arrangement while also bearing the burden of the financial responsibility. In such situations, many women not only grapple with unimaginable stress, but sometimes come to see a husband and a father to their children as just another dependent that few can afford. Men in the modern age are often not viewed as leaders or as servants, but as consumers of food, beer, video games, or whatever. They are, they, they are seen that way because in many ways, that's what they have become. Without a revelatory compass to find identity, more and more men have surrendered simply to satisfying their urges and staying out of the way. You see, I don't know about you, but I think it's really, really good for a man to go to bed tired. I think it's really good for men to feel exhausted as that head hits the pillow. And it's good because, one, that's how you were designed, but it's also good because it helps keep men out of trouble. For example, I know for myself even, if I'm off work for too long, say like on a vacation or something, by the end of the week, I'm getting pretty squirrely, pretty obnoxious. You know, I'm kind of like pestering the kids, I'm, I'm pestering my wife, I'm even pestering the dog. And because of that, at some point, my wife, Faith, usually looks at me and she's like, so, so when are you going back to work again? Oh, oh, you sure you don't wanna go back a little early? I'm sure you got a lot to do, right? You need to, right? Now, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just an annoying person. <laughs> but I, I, I tend to think that it's more than that. I tend to think that men are designed and men are called to work, and it's part of our identity and it's part of our purpose. You see, I haven't brought it up yet, but I think even biology shows us this. Now, before I share some of this, I, I should say up front that I had to cheat my way through science in both high school and college, so don't, don't take this for medical advice. <laughs> However, though, I can read, thankfully, and I can research, and so let me share with you some of these, uh, apparently, these, these biological differences between men and women, because I think they're interesting. For example, did you know that the basic metabolic rate is about 6% higher in adolescent boys than girls, and increases to about 10% higher after puberty? Not only that, but during, uh, during metabolism, girls convert more energy into stored fat, while boys convert more energy into muscle and expendable circulating reserves. At age 18, girls have almost twice the body fat of boys. Sorry, ladies. Um, it does serve a purpose, which I can't get into. Um, boys at age 18 have about 50% more muscle mass than girls, particularly in the upper body. Males on average have denser, stronger bones, tendons, and ligaments, which allow for heavier work. The male testosterone level is two to three times that of the female until puberty, at which time it becomes on average 15 times higher than that of a female. Females produce about twice the estrogen of males prior to pu puberty and eight to 10 times more after puberty. Men also have relatively larger hearts and can bump a larger volume of blood. Males have about 10% higher red blood cell counts, higher hemoglobin readings, and consequently higher oxygen-carrying capacity. They have higher circulating, cl uh, circulating clotting factors, which leads to a more rapid healing of wounds and bruises. 
Males have fewer sensor, sensory nerve endings in the skin and higher peripheral pain tolerance. This combination of traits may aid in encouraging males to be more active and to be risk takers. You see, there's no doubt that women work and they often work harder than men, but what I'm getting at here is this issue of when it comes to providing in a family, who should feel the primary weight of that, the man or the woman? In other words, if there is no bread on the table or no milk in the fridge, who is the one who should feel like it is their primary job to figure out how to fix that? Well, again, you may disagree with me, but I think according to the scripture and even according to our biology, it is the man. Now let's go quickly to that last role or that last responsibility, which is protector. You see, we just read this verse earlier, but in Genesis 2.15, we are told that God took the man, he put him in the garden, and he told him to work it and to keep it. Now, we just talked about the work it part, but what exactly does God mean by keep it? Well, it seems pretty obvious that part of keeping something is guarding and protecting it. And clearly here in this context, God is talking about Adam protecting and keeping the garden. However, though, I think this broader role of protector extends beyond just this. For example, in Ephesians 5, which we also looked at earlier, Paul tells husbands to care for their wives as they would their own bodies. And certainly part of caring for our bodies is protecting them in various ways. You see, again, I, I think intuitively we all know this, even though some in our culture have tried to deny it. You know, I mentioned earlier the two different tragedies that took place in 2012 with the Costa Concordia and the, the movie theater shooting. And again, the contrast couldn't be more striking in those two stories. In one, men use their bodies and their lives to protect women, and then in the other, men use their bodies in order to push past women and children and the elderly in order to save their own lives. And again, as we look at that, even culturally, we think one was heroic and the other one was cowardice. One was worthy of applause and praise and the other was worthy of condemnation. I mean, look, if I wake up in the middle of the night because I hear a door open or a glass break or the dog's freaking out or something like that, I don't turn to faith and wake her up and say, hey, babe, wake up. I, I think I hear something downstairs. I, I think you should grab the baseball bat and go check it out. Right? Like, I don't do that. And if I did that, I would hope one of you men in here would pull me aside and punch me in the face. <laughs> now, look, you, you and I, we can get all hung up on exceptions. Like, well, what about the guy in a wheelchair? Or what about the wife who's an ex-Marine or who fights in the UFC? And, and yes, you're right. Of course, there are always nuances. There are always exceptions. But in general... Can we just say that in that scenario, it is the man's primary responsibility to get off his butt and get downstairs and check it out? I mean, again, I think we can even go back to, to biology to support this. I mean, part of what testosterone does is it makes you more aggressive and physical. And certainly there is a version of that that is bad and looks like toxic masculinity and abuse. But there's also a version of that that is good and can lead to protecting those who are vulnerable. And so again, these are the three primary roles that I think are unique or distinct when it comes to masculinity, priest, provider, protector. Let's move on quickly though and, and let's answer this last question, which is how should believers respond or how should the church respond to all of this? Well, I think the first thing I want to say here is that I think we shouldn't exaggerate our differences, perhaps like we've been guilty of in the past, but at the same time, we shouldn't deny differences between men and women either. You see, if earlier generations were maybe guilty of pressing or exaggerating differences so much that it actually led to misinformation or, or worse, oppression of women, it seems to me that we might be guilty or at least be tempted to deny any differences at all. Again, the Bible has no problem saying that something can be equal, but also different or distinct. In fact, I think the Bible even argues for beauty and diversity. We see that with how it talks about race and ethnicities, but we also see it when it comes to male and females. 
And really what I think all of those things highlight is the truth, beauty, and reality of the Trinity itself. In the Trinity, we see all three persons of the Godhead are equal in worth and equal in worship, but at the same time, we also see that they play distinct roles inside the Godhead. And so again, we shouldn't exaggerate our differences, but we shouldn't deny them either. A second thing I would say or, or would say to us is that I think we need to be careful with stereotypes and we need to be careful not to add too many specifics to what these distinct roles have to look like practically. Whether we're talking about men's ministry or marriage retreats or even one-on-one conversations, I think you and I need to be careful not to assume every man neatly fits into our current cultural stereotypes. Believe it or not, I've actually met men who don't like camping or hiking. I've even met men who are vegetarians and who don't like sports. Now, I know that's shocking to most of us, but it's true. And the reality is that according to the Bible, those dudes are no less masculine than the guy who came to church today in his pickup truck while eating bacon, listening to 97.1, the fan. And so again, let's just be careful with those stereotypes. I think we also uh, need to be careful not to add too many specifics to what we think these unique gender roles have to look like in everyday life. You see, it seems to me that maybe some older generation of believers really did capture what the Bible has to say about gender roles and about gender distinctions, but perhaps where some of them got off or maybe where some legalism started to creep in is that they added too much of their own rules or their own interpretations to what the Bible actually says. Now look, that is a natural inclination and I'm sure my generation is gonna be guilty of it in some other area inside Christianity. But you see, the problem is that like the Pharisees who took the law and then added some man-made rules or traditions, in the same way, when it comes to this topic, some people have taken the law or the, the principle around one of these gender roles, and they have added some specifics that the Bible doesn't really talk about. And in doing so, they have conflated what the Bible says with their own interpretations, experiences, or personal convictions. And I guess all I'm saying is, and all I'm urging us in is let's not do that. Let's not become the Holy Spirit for other people. If the Bible is clear about it, then let's be clear about it. But if not, then let's leave room for personal conviction. I think another way you and I can respond is by telling a better story than the culture. You see, our culture has a version of what they think masculinity is, but they also have a version of what they think Christianity is actually like, and I think both of their versions are wrong. You see, it's real common for our culture to try and blame Christianity and Christian teaching for toxic masculinity, but actually, when you trace things historically, nothing could be farther from the truth. You see, our culture reads chapters like Ephesians 5, and they think, oh, wow, Christianity is so oppressive. It's so old-fashioned, it's out of touch. But actually, those words about men and women in marriage, they rocked the ancient world. For instance, sociologist uh, Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, in it, he demonstrates that first-century Christianity was so empowering and attractive to women that in 370 AD, Emperor Valentina uh, issued a decree to the Pope demanding that Christian missionaries stop evangelizing women in their homes. And the reason he did that is because women were the most likely to convert to Christianity because of how they were treated compared to the Greco-Roman world at large. I mean, you want to talk about oppressive or abuse towards women, go read some history about what Roman society was like in the first century. It was absolutely brutal. Not only that, though, but even in our own day, we have good news and we have a better story to tell. Again, in this book I mentioned earlier by Nancy Piercy called The Toxic War on Masculinity, and as she points out, all of these uh, different research projects which demonstrate that compared to secular men, devout Christian men who attend church regularly are more loving husbands and more engaged fathers. They have the lowest rates of divorce and the lowest rates of domestic violence. They also report having the highest levels of sexual satisfaction and their wives report having the highest qualities of marriages than any other group. In fact, all of this led researcher Brad Wilcox to write in the New York Times this, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. 
Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And so with that, let's not be ashamed of our beliefs, but rather let's live out and let's tell our culture a better story. And then finally, the last thing I would say is this, let's hold up and point to Jesus as the ultimate man, the ultimate version of masculinity. You see, the truth is even the best men that you and I know are still imperfect men. There was only one man who perfectly embodied the traits of what it means to be masculine. And in fact, the Bible even calls him the last Adam. This Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so to close here, let me read a quote from author Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity. She writes this. And band, you can go ahead and come on up for our last song. She says, we will never understand the Bible's call on men and women unless we see Jesus as the ultimate man. He had strength to command storms, summon angel armies and defeat death. But his arms held little children, his words elevated women and his hands reached out to heal the sick. Jesus drove out traitors out of the temple with a whip, but he tenderly welcomed the outcast and weak. After he had been mocked, beaten, and abused by his guards, Jesus was displayed to the crowds wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe to ridicule his kingly claim. The Roman governor Pilate announced, Behold the man! These words drip with irony. Jesus, beaten and humiliated out of love for his people, was and is the perfect man. No one who uses the Bible's teaching on marriage to justify chauvinism, abuse, or denigration of women has looked at Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do live in confusing times, Lord. We do live in a day when uh, there's almost a sense of shame that some men feel for just being a man. And yet that's not the vision, that's not the version that you paint for us. Lord, you say, I made them male and female in my image and behold, it was very good. Father, would you help this church to hold on to a biblical view of masculinity? Father, would you help the men in this church to be the kind of men your scriptures call us to? to be men who love women well, who love our wives and our daughters and our families like Christ loved the church. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. You came to free us from the power of sin such that we could be those kind of men you've called us to. And Lord, I pray for the women in our church. Help them to, to, to hold men to a higher standard. If they're single, Lord, help them to, to not settle for some little boy, but to wait for a godly man. Lord, if they're married to, a, to a, a boy who can shave, I pray that you would help them to, to know how to encourage their husbands, to not shame them, to not, to not uh, denigrate them, but to encourage them to be the kind of men that you're calling them to. And so would you help us, Father? Help us to look to Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. We love him. It's, his, it's in his name we pray. Amen.